All right, welcome to the thirtieth episode of the Latch Podcast. After a after an after a extended hiatus, I can't uh, can't speak after this hiatus. Uh, we are back, and we are lucky enough to be joined by Bobby Marks, front office insider at the Vertical, and former assistant uh, GM for my New Jersey slash uh, Brooklyn Nets. Bobby, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm. Uh, I have to say I'm pretty happy that this net season is over, and I'm looking forward to what uh, to what the front office uh, does this summer. But before I even talk to you about the Nets, which I do have a few questions for you about them, uh, I'm curious just from your standpoint. Uh, once once your team makes the playoffs and you're in the front office, uh, what's I guess what, what's an average day like? Is it totally focused on scouting? Is there still a little bit of a work going on for post offseason? Uh, Post postseason, and I guess uh, what to get into in the off season. Well, I think it's a little bit different. I think it's, it's when you make the playoffs, um, if your team does, if, you know, from a front office perspective, you're uh, you're with the team on the road uh, from the time the playoffs start, which was this past weekend, until the time your team is eliminated. So uh, the bulk of it is, is really the travel aspect of it, but you also have to. Uh, you know, start the process from uh, if you are going to maybe do a mini camp, uh, if you start the process of um, putting together draft workouts, uh, putting a plan in place for, um, you know, the off offseason. Uh, I think you can still do all that, but you have to factor in the, the game element there. Uh, you know, not making the playoffs is, uh, is a little bit different. I think it gives you, A, a little bit more time to kind of di- digest from, uh, you know, the season that just ended for teams like Brooklyn, whose season ended on uh, you know last Wednesday. You know, really the Thursday Friday is, is a focus on exit interviews with your own players, uh, either with uh, in the next case Kenny Kenny Atkinson and Sean Marks. You know, and, and every team is a little bit different. Some teams have the general manager and the, and the head coach together in the interview. Some teams have it separately. I I, I prefer both together uh, and it's basically kind of a uh, you know a sit down with the player get a reflection on the season how they can improve and what the plan is for them um, you know in the uh, in the off season as far as from a, from a workout standpoint when do you want them back in the, in the facility um, you know besides the exit interviews you know then you start your uh, and in this case, for some other teams, the, the mini camps, you, you have a little bit more of a jump start to uh, the draft workouts, uh, putting together a plan. So I think you're, you're a little bit ahead of the curve than maybe a team that, that's in the, in the playoffs, just because of how much a little more downtime there is. So before we get into uh, some of the playoff teams, and I have specific questions for you about them, for someone like uh, – the Knicks, who obviously had a disappointing season to say the least, is it? Does it matter at all? I know I'm not one to get into gossip and rumors. Does it matter at all that someone like Porzingis, who the Knicks see as the future of their team, uh, skipped out on the exit interviews? I, I think it does. I mean, I think it sets the tone for the off season. Uh, you know, even in my time in New Jersey and, and Brooklyn, and we've had a lot of. Uh, you know, I think we missed the playoffs ten out of the twenty years I was there, and some some not very good years and some dysfunction sometime. I, I don't I don't remember a player blowing off a an exit interview. Uh, in, in the matter that, you know, that was what was reported in, in the case of uh, you know, Porzingis. I understand that there's certainly a 
a matter of frustration and uh, uncertainty as far as where the plan is going forward for him. It's, it's different. Be, you know, he's had you know, two coaches in, in two years and then a basically turned over roster in, in, in two consecutive seasons. So I'm sure there's a lot of uncertainty there. But, yeah, I mean, I, I understand him taking a stand, uh, but I think you can probably do it in a different way than kind of blowing off uh, your exit interview. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like for for someone like Porzingis, I'm wondering if uh, obviously he's a he's a foreign player, gets acclimated to the league, and I think obviously is uh, bolted right into the NBA chaos, being a being a part of this Knicks roster, as you mentioned, uh, having two different coaches, and then seeing the way that this season went. Um, do you? I mean, obviously, as someone who's been a part of a bunch of different teams with a bunch of different. Uh, coaches is the way that Phil handled himself is it as bad as how the media makes it out to be or do you kind of understand parts of the ways that he handled himself I'm I'm just curious from a front office point of view how uh how Phil was this year well you know everything's different I I don't understand how um you know he hasn't talked uh, talked or addressed the media since September um it wasn't like he's in San Antonio and it, there's there's clear sailing and there's you know, maybe a little bit of not that much adversity uh, there. I mean, here's a team in New York where you've got a new coach, you've got uh, mounting issues during the year. When you look at the Rose situation uh, in training camp, you look at him going a wall. You look at the, the Noah suspension, the Noah injury, uh, the pieces that he signed have not played up. Uh, you know, uh, worked out here, um, and then kind of. Uh, you know, kind of not being around uh, or available to maybe even the media, I think that really sends a bad message. And I, and, I, and I don't think you have to, you know, tell the media everything that or your blueprint as far as what you want to do, but um, I think there's an advantage when you're trying to get out your message as far as to tell what your, what your plan could be. And, and uh, you know, he waited until the last Friday to, I guess, I guess do so, um, where maybe he could have done it in December or January when when Rose went missing. You know, he, he basically let the coach kind of be the, you know, the spokesman for the team. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, in New York there always has to be uh, be something going on. I have to say, even with uh, how even with how bad a, a season the Nets had record wise, I'm very happy in the direction that they're moving. And I gotta say, it definitely feels like a different direction uh, than the other New York counterparts. But um, going going into uh, some of the teams that are currently playing in the playoffs, I'm really curious because I think from a from a fan's perspective. When you watch the like the playoffs, you kind of designate certain teams as contenders, and you designate other teams as uh, pretenders, and then you also kind of have like a gray area of teams that let's say did really had a really good regular season, but you don't really see them as real. And I, I don't want to call them pretenders because you do want to give them a little bit more credit than they deserve. Kind of like the Hawks a few years ago when they were the the one seed, and I think that's to a certain extent how people. Um, view the Celtics this year or even like the Clippers case they people want people have had high ex- expectations for them for a while but they're kind of like oh well is this it like will they blow it up is that something that the front office is thinking about or are they still taking it game by game uh even with the narratives that that are that are going on in the background well I think you take it on a game by game basis because you never know when when a key injury is about to happen either in the series you're in 
you know, right now or, you know, down down the road there. And uh, I think every team has different expectations when you, get, when you start the season. I think when you look at Cleveland's expectation level, maybe is a little bit different than a team like Milwaukee, who, you know, missed the playoffs last year and has a young nucleus and, and getting into the playoffs and using that platform to, to get some of their players some experience. Is a uh, you know is, is, a, is a goal there even you know even with them winning in, in, in Toronto the uh, the other night and you know you look at out out west with you know, where where Golden State's expectation level is and maybe where Utah is who had not made the playoffs in you know f- four or five years but from a competitive standpoint you you know you saw you know the Curry injury last year you know would an injury to you know himself or Durant how do, how would that you know, shake up the playoffs here. So I think you really just take it on a, on a game by game basis. Don't get don't get ahead of yourself looking towards that uh, next round because what I've learned, you know, especially working in nets, I mean, these games are not easy to win. You know, rarely do we see many uh, many blowouts. Even though those Nets teams I was part of, and when Jason was the point guard, you know, we we certainly had our fair share. But you know, as you as you see now, the games slow down. Start to see a little more of a half court game. You know, defense is, is certainly a, a certainly a preference. And uh, so for so for a team like the Clippers, let's say, who's um, had the same core of obviously like DeAndre, uh, Blake, Chris Paul, um, also JJ for um, a while now. Are you someone who subscribes to like if you have something that's winning, even if it's not working perfectly? that you should kind of continue with it because like making the playoffs within itself is, is an accomplishment and having the success that the Clippers have had, which is like consistently winning high forties, mid fifties that you should keep it going. Cause I think there is like this media pressure of like, uh, or, or these narratives that build up like, Oh, this team can't win together. They might as well just blow it up and start over. And for me, like as a, as a fan, I, I still think it's fun to make the playoffs. Obviously if you're in that seven, eight seed and getting blown out every year, obviously that's not ideal, but in the Clippers, case I just don't really know kind of what what you get out of out of blowing it up especially with the talent they have and the talent for the most part it's not uh super young but it's young enough that you can still compete for a few more years after this well yeah I mean I think the, the narrative is, is that you know if you're someone in the media and it's questioning you know hey if let's say if, um, for example if, if you, they lose to Utah in this you know first round and you say well you got to blow it up and stuff all right what is, what's, what would be your plan to, to do so? You look at the Clipper team, a team that sacrificed multiple draft picks in, in pre, previous years, probably have, you can fault them for not doing a great job in the player development standpoint, have you know, a draft pick going out um, you know, this year to probably Orlando, I believe, or Orlando or, or, or Toronto. He's got a pick going out in, in 2019 to, to Boston. Who is in the next layer? What, what what is your foundation if you decide you'd want to bring Chris Paul back and and Blake Griffin back and then that that group there where you've got those guys under wraps already? Um, you know, you, as you see, you know, it's hard to build a team with cap space. You know, you get into a you get into a bidding war. Um, you know, it's it's uh, integrating all these different different you know pieces is, is, is certainly a challenge. And and while if, if the Clippers let both guys go, it's not like they're going to be sitting on, you know, $60 million in room, you know, based right. on some of the contracts they uh, signed, you know, last summer, including DeAndre Jordan. So I, I just don't think there's a, there's a plan plan B there, but, 
you know, your plan A is awfully expensive. I mean, that's the, that's the downside here is that if you do retain the group and you resign Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, that's, you know, that's $65 million in one year for those two guys if you max them out. You've got to figure out what J.J. Redick is and what his value is, is expendable based on Crawford and, and Rivers. Um, you look at, uh, you know, they're a repeater tax team, so, uh, you know, that's a, certainly a cost uh, costly measure. And, and if, let's say, if you're Steve Ballmer and you, and you say, you know what, we all want everyone back, doesn't matter what the cost would be, is that you get to the point of how much is too, too much. You know, $150 million payroll basically costs you another 110 in, in, in luxury tax. And, you know, you, you'll still have that Golden State team in San Antonio and Houston to kind of compete with, with every year. So it's, it's a hard, you know, it's hard to swallow as far as from a management perspective as far as what direction to go there. Yeah, I guess it's just interesting because I guess the other team that I kind of see in a similar boat, even though they don't really get talked about, um, probably due to where they're located and due to the, the and due to having fewer star powers, is I kind of wonder if um, if Masai Ujiri and the Raptors kind of think similarly because obviously, I, I mean, not uh, not to uh, overemphasize like the first the, the first game that they played, but they obviously lost and struggled uh, to the Bucks, and obviously Lowry's coming off of. Uh, off of his uh, wrist injury, but I'm just curious generally because they're also a team that seems like they have a core. They made two big moves in getting PJ Tucker and Ibaka. I know Ibaka is obviously going into a contract year this uh, this upcoming summer, and with them, they also seem like they are they're in a similar place where they've had a core for a while that's been successful. They obviously had that really close uh, series with the Nets uh, three or four years back when they weren't even supposed to be as good as they were. Um, do you see? Do you see them as in a different spot because the core is a bit younger, and I guess in and I guess they recently re-signed DeRozan, or do you think it's different because, uh, because or, or, or sorry, or is it similar because Lowry's also a free agent, Ibaka's a free agent, they also have some big decisions to make. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit different from from the Clippers, especially where you know they've not been in attacks like like Los Angeles has been in the last uh, last co- couple of years. Um, you're, you've got a you know uh, you know a strong nucleus there, but yeah, I mean, the cost probably won't be as high as maybe in, in Los Angeles and along with your salary and putting your luxury tax. But I think that's the kind of a team you need to you need to pay attention to as far as you know, do they get out of the first round against Milwaukee, and if they don't, you know, what's the cost of Kyle Lowry going to be, you know, a player who's going to be in his early 30s? Usually, what what what, fall, what haunts teams is that when you sign free agents, you usually pay for prior production without an eye towards what the future is. So, let's say if you if you, if you sign Lowry to a four-year, uh, $130 million, well, it's, it's the value of Kyle Lowry in 2016-17 going to be the same in 2018-19. I, I don't know if it will be based on his age and how, how many minutes he, he's played there. Um, you know, Bach is a little bit different. You know, he's you know, four or five year, years younger and, and probably not as many miles on his, on his leg. And, and fours are hard to find, especially guys that can stretch the floor and, and play defense. Um, but I, I think it will all, all come down to as far as how much from a, from a cost perspective, and that's where you kind of need the business business of basketball into the equation yeah absolutely and uh for and do you see the hawks as a team that's also in a similar situation to that or no 
Well, they're kind of stuck in the middle. Um, you know, I think that's the team that is, you know, has made it to the playoffs, you know, I mean, what, 10, 10 years in a row, back to when Joe was there, Johnson. Um, you know, I don't see how much better they can get from where they are in that five seed. Maybe they can get up to up to four. Um, but you've got some tough decisions, you know, what the cost of Millsap is going to be. You know, a guy who's, you know, 32 years old, but, but, but besides – you know, Blake Griffin, the top power forward, you know, how much is Tim Hardaway Jr. going to cost you, you know, with, with Bazemore signed to that long, long-term long deal last uh, last summer there. So, um, you know, but if you, if, you, if you don't, you know, bring back Millsap and you don't match a Hardaway offer, you know, has Atlanta always been a drawing place? You know, I know Dwight signed there last year, but I, I can't make the argument that it has. Yeah, absolutely. Just, it's, it's so interesting because I, I – and I'm, I'm wondering if the social media era is kind of con- has kind of changed the way that GMs think because I'm sure it's changed the way like players think and stuff like that because there does seem to end up being pressure that builds so much quicker. Whereas I kind of feel like when I was growing up and watching basketball, you had a lot of these teams kind of develop a lot over time. And now it's like once you hit two, three years, we haven't won. It's like, oh, well, what's wrong with it? Do we need to make that type of change? Do you see social media at all making a difference in the way that the, these GMs play? I think there is, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of outside pressure, you know, either from a, you know, from a media standpoint. You certainly have seen a, you know, a bigger role from, uh, you know, an agent standpoint. I think you, you'll probably see it again this summer when, you know, what happens with, you know, Paul George if, you know, if he does earn All NBA honors and um, the pressure for, you know, Indiana to try to sign him to a long-term contract. What happens with Paul George? Does not does that make him automatically that you need to trade him? Do you go out and try to chase uh, deals to help improve your roster? But what happens if you make a deal and he leaves the following year and you're stuck with maybe a player you didn't want? So I, I think that, that the, the social media aspect of it, um, you know, certainly comes in, into play. It's just a, it's a different age that we're in right now. Yeah, absolutely. It just. Uh... I don't know, just because I guess my, my, my first, I feel like, social media instant uh, or social media reaction with uh, free agency was kind of the way the whole Dwight situation went with the Nets, which I know you know really, really well. And it just seemed like that ended up like boiling up in there. And, and that was kind of like, that felt like the first big Twitter trade free agency frenzy generally. Because I feel like the decision in 2010, it was there, but then I kind of felt like I was on Twitter way more the following. <laughs> The, the following year for, for that type of stuff. And I, and I honestly feel like that uh, it, 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 it felt like it ended up did kind of uh, blow up more in the, in the Nets' face in the sense that everyone knew about it. The rumors were, were constantly out there, and there was the trade, and then there was over the summer what was going to happen. I'm sure uh, Brooke Lopez has been the biggest victim of the, uh, of the, the Twitter GM sphere uh, as we currently have it. But, um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where you see social media. It's just a matter of, you know, it's, it's a way of news now. Uh, and I think you have to trust either from a Twitter standpoint, the people who are putting out the news, you know, either our group at the Vertical or some maybe some of the ESPN guys as far as what, what the reliable information is. And I think teams rely on that information, uh, you know, the accurate information that can kind of help them either get a step ahead of what they're, what they're trying to do or, uh, you know, use the information to either maybe change the course on what they want to do. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Um, another question for you going, uh, going out West. 
with the with the Rockets team, there's a discussion I've been having with a lot of my friends recently, which kind of has to do with their success and how much of it is uh, due to like the ascension of Harden becoming an MVP candidate again after kind of his little dip last year, and how much of it is due to uh, D'Antoni. Obviously, D'Antoni is someone who uh, has been around the league forever, especially while um, while you've been uh, while you've had a focal point with the Nets, especially is is D'Antoni um, is D'Antoni someone that's really as revered as uh, he's now made out to be when he has success? Because I guess I'm, I'm I'm not doing a good job uh, totally articulating the question. I guess I find it interesting that he was the most revered guy in the mid 2000s, and then he's put in a tough spot with the Knicks, and then a tough spot with the with the Lakers, and now he's kind of come out of this uh, NBA narrative hell, and now he's kind of uh, back in the mix. So I'm kind of wondering whether, is this a combination of D'Antoni and Harden, or is this really like the work of, of one of them being truly great? Well, no, I think it's the work of, of his relationship with, you know, with the general manager, you know, Dal Moore there, and as far as having a role as far as who the players that they went out and, and chased this summer, when you look at um, Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson and, and the and the Nay, they all fit the style of, of what the coach is, is trying to do, and as far as, and then also building a relationship with your franchise player and, and, and James Harden, and I think when you look at, the situation in, in Los Angeles, you, you can't make you know the, the, the assumption that, that that was true as far as the roster that he was dealt didn't fit with with what he was doing, including including his time in, in New York, and and that all comes down to you know it, it's one thing for the general manager general manager to identify the players that he thinks best fits the team, but it's another thing when you bring the coach into the discussion and he has a, an active role in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I all right, so another question I have for you regarding the Rockets, and this is a discussion I've had, and it all ties into the whole Westbrook Harden debate, which is totally taken over the uh which totally took over the NBA for a while and took over a lot of uh a lot of the journalism that was put out in terms of the just the debate generally. If taking away Harden and Westbrook from a GM perspective, and obviously I know they're they're the players and the personnel are fit for two different types of systems. Do you see there being a big difference between Harden's supporting cast to Westbrook's supporting cast? I'm kind of, I'm, I'm asking this selfishly because I'm someone who's had a bunch of arguments where I, where I personally see the Rockets' supporting cast is far superior um, than the Thunder's. But I'm curious in terms of the assets that you see on both, on both, on both sides. Well, I think there, I think there's, there's more veterans. I think there, from a, from a team, from a little bit more of a battle-tested team when you look at. Patrick Beverly and um, you know Lou Williams and um, Nene, uh, Ryan, An- you know Ryan Anderson, Eric Gordon. They're, I mean, they're, it's a veteran veteran cast there. You know, Capella's uh, he's young, but he's they've really done a nice job from a, from a development standpoint. And I think when you you know you look at Oklahoma City, it's it's a little bit more guys who have not been battle tested. You know, look at Old Depot who's never played in the playoffs before. Um, you know, Stephen Adams is still a young player, although he had a good playoff series last year. You know, McDermott is is uh, you know not not battle tested there. Um, you know, Abrinas, you know, and the other young player. Um, you know, I think you can go on on and on there. I know Canner, you know. Had a role last year in, in, in the playoffs and everything, and um, in, in that mindset. But um, I, I just think, yeah, I mean, I think I think the Houston supporting cast is, 
is a lot better. I mean, I, I really do. I think there's roles there. I think they've, they're experienced. Um, you know, most of those guys were on a team that lost in the in a Western Conference final. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm I have to tell you, I'm incredibly happy that you said that. That really made my <laughs> that uh that made my night because I've gotten into too many arguments about the supporting cast between the. Be uh, between the two. My last question for you, um, and it goes kind of back to, or my last question regarding the Western Conference for you, because um, I have a few Nets questions, which I also have to selfishly ask. Um, it, are, are the Grizzlies another one of those teams that kind of that kind of fall into the uh, Clippers, a, a little bit of the Raptors, the Hawks in terms of like, a, a what are we doing? Because obviously the the Grizzlies made their bet a little bit in giving big deals to Gasol and Conley, and they all obviously. Uh, gave a big deal this past summer to Parsons. Um, I know Zebo's a. I, th- I believe Zebo's a free agent this coming summer. But do you see them as a team that kind of went the other way in terms of the blowing up? And they're like, this is what we have. And because I haven't really heard any of the guys, any of their big stars, being rumored to be in deal. So it seems like they're rolling with the punches and seeing what uh, what this nucleus can do. I think they're content on where they are. Uh, I think they realize that likely they'll probably won't be a championship team. And although they have a, I like their coach there and Dave Fisdale. But uh, you know, you look at you know what they did with, and I don't think they had much of a choice when you look at the Conley contract that last year. I mean, another team that you know had had traded multiple picks in in recent years didn't have a. If they had a young stud as a backup point guard, I think you could have been. Have a little more flexibility as far as what you do with, um, you know, with Conley, you know, Gasol. This, you know, Gasol is certainly an all-star there. You know, the Parsons contract I think has really hurt them. Um, I think that was a, certainly a, a risk there with that number, and and that that contract is going to, you know, make them have some difficult decisions. You know, this summer when you look at, uh, you've got three big free agents with uh, Zach Randolph, Tony Allen, the restricted free agency of Jermichael Green. So. You know, can you bring back all three? I would say unlikely because another team that might go in, into the luxury tax there. So I think they're content as far as getting into that five seven range. Um, you know, retaining their own players, and you know they're, they're not going to have the cap space to go out and, and be uh, you know a, a big player in free agency. Yeah, it's I I have to say at this point I think I kind of respect these teams that. That, that that roll with what they have. I mean, I I think obviously you hit a certain point where the teams can't compete. But if you have like two assets and two guys who are as great as Conley and Gasol, I just I never really understand the 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 trading them, especially because it's so rare anymore to really get like ninety cents on the dollar. It seems like all these deals end up being thirty, forty, fifty cents, and these teams end up getting set back so far. Even 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 looking at like Orlando post post Dwight has been a total disaster for them. Well, you're right. I mean, it's like, it's, let's say, uh, like, it's like a hypothetical. Let's say last summer, you know, uh, Memphis makes an effort and they don't want to bring Mike Conley because they want to use cap space this upcoming summer when you have a point guard heavy, um, you know, uh, class. So you're letting a guy that you basically drafted, you, you develop, you know what he is, to go out for the unknown a little bit because maybe it'll cost you some some dollars there or, or save you some dollars there and maybe give you a little bit more flexibility and and I think you you know I think cap space to a um, you know to a fall is, is is overrated I mean I, re- I really do I know it sounds great and we've got thirty or forty million dollars in room to go out and sign a guy but having it is one thing going out and being able to sign a player is, is another thing yeah no. I- Absolutely, and and it just seems like a lot of these teams that had 
these great players and decided to reboot it really doesn't work out. I mean, the two teams that come to mind first are, it seems like the T-Wolves, honestly, even though they had a whole decade, of, not decade, whole half decade of players that came after KG with the whole Love and Rubio and Pekovic uh, era, they still really haven't gotten over it. And, and now they're finally starting to become more fun, but they still had a disappointing year. And even the, the Kings never really got over the post Weber Stojakovic uh, uh, Mike Bibby Christie team as as well uh, after blowing after trading Weber and stuff like that. So it just seems like seems like these teams that obviously there are teams that are that are great at retooling. I think the Mavs end up being um, pretty decent at that, but generally generally it's 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 totally hard to. Um, I'm curious though, as a diehard Nets fan and someone who is also very interested in the whole point guard debate and the evolution of the of the point guard um position especially in the modern day nba and how how often people uh, players shoot threes at this point um is it when i when i try to think about like jason kidd's impact on the court when i used to watch him i think i think um the audience will find this interesting because there there did there did seem to be such an evolution from like kid to nash and now you kind of have curry which is like a better version of uh of Nash. Do you think, do you think kid with the way he played could have ended up adapting to this type of, uh, to, to this type of NBA today or guys like Gary Payton who weren't these bona fide score shooters or is, or, or the skills that are needed today just so much different? Well, I think Jason is different. You know, he, he towards the tail end of his career evolved into more of a three point shooter. Um, it would have been interesting if he had kind of, if that was built into his game during his prime, you know, back in, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in New Jersey, uh, although, you know, he did make a lot of big shots, um, you know, you know, during that stretch and with the, with the Nets there. And, and I, you know, I think the, you know, we look at now guards are more of a, uh, I guess there's more of a scoring point guard mindset than the guy that's looking to maybe set up his teammates and install his will on, uh, you know, as far as to make his, you know, everyone, the other four guys around him better instead of maybe, you know, him going out for to get, look to get 25 or 30 points. I think it's just the way, I think it's the way we look at things and it's the way that the NBA has evolved in, in, in this cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of when, I mean, obviously I'm sure Euro uh, will be, could be biased to a certain extent. I know I totally am. I felt like when I watched Kid, the, what he did to make the players around him better was something that I really feel like I haven't, seen replicated like I I even even when people get into the whole like kid versus Nash debate which was kind of a thing even though Nash's peak came a little bit after uh came after kids I felt like a lot of Nash's players had success after him and obviously the system that he played in was perfect for him but I just felt like with the guys that kid had I just I personally still think even today with what how Curry has made his guys better I just feel like I've never seen someone totally uh change the direction of a franchise and a team the way that the way that kid did with with those with those assets to me like what he did with the nets was very like lebron esque with uh with with the cavs no you're right i mean that's you know his impact where he had it in new jersey in those six or seven years you can follow it to dallas you know for that championship year and then you know a couple years later that that one year in in new york where you know i i've never seen a player as you know unselfish as he was that made basically made a lot of guys a lot of money. Um, when you look at the players who have, you know, from Kenyon to Richard to, um, 
you know, uh, Scalabrini. I mean, you, uh, you can go down the line. Jason Collins, you can go down the line of, of, of guys where he, he basically was the ultimate setup man as well as, um, you know, give you scoring when, when, when needed and everything. And he is, you know, certainly a, you know, I don't think we'll see a guy as from his impact. I mean, I, I know the impact of LeBron and everything, but certainly from a, from a point guard you know, perspective. Absolutely, and I'm so I'm curious when you look back at your time um, with the Nets and with those early 2000 Nets teams that were really successful. Um, who are the guys, and even if they're obvious, that's totally fine. Who are the guys in the East that that scared you the most? I remember, like I remember, like the Nets always had trouble with um with the Bucks with like the the Glenn Robinson Ray Allen team, and I remember. Like obviously they had, they, I remember they had the, that epic collapse against uh, against the Celtics. I think I think they eventually ended up winning the series though. But the Pierce and Walker combo, like which players? Uh, because I think people long now for the early two thousands to a certain extent. Which players uh, really terrified you the most when you were uh, with the Nets? Well, no, you're right. I mean, I think that Milwaukee team that was built. You know, we faced them in um, you know the O. Was that oh three? I think that was the first round. Yeah. That was a you know not a, an easy you know two seven matchup when you look at how that team was built with um, you know I think they had Cassell and um, you know Ray Allen that 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 group there as far as guys were able to make you know big shots. The Boston team was you know was a little bit different team than we saw in um, you know the Eastern Conference Finals to the one we saw in the second round a year later. You know basically. It, they had lost, you know, Rod, you know, Rodney Rogers, uh, you know, from that team, and he was, um, you know, now on, uh, you know, now now a member of, of the Nets there and everything. So um, there wasn't much, you know, you know, sustenance, you know, um, as far as keeping that team together. So um, you know, the Detroit team, um, you know, I think it really didn't scare us until they made the Rashid trade and, uh, you know, right at the deadline in, in 2004, and I think that totally changed the, the dynamic of, uh, you know that group there but you know i i didn't you know i don't think there was really any team that we felt that um you know this is going to be a you know a challenge or a battle i mean these guys are were pretty confident uh pretty confident group here and everything um you know that another team that was you know that gave us you know we beat them in five was was that um that charlotte team um that was now i guess now is new, is, um, new orleans and everything they had a pretty good group when you look at like they had mashburn and and mcglore there um you know, George Lynch. So that was more of a, a veteran group. Yeah, absolutely. And when you, I mean, when you look back at the, at the two finals uh, appearances, obviously the 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 first series against the Lakers um, was a sweep. When you guys, when you look back at that series, do you feel like there was a way that you guys could have made it closer than what it was, or did you think that Lakers team was just totally overpowering and obviously had the two best players um, in the series, even e- even with Kid playing at a, at an MVP level. I think I think when you look at I guess it was a game three, um, you know the home game. I think you know both both games, both uh, games three and four. I think either one game could have kind of swayed a little bit differently. Uh, I think there were you know each of the four games were certainly competitive. I think we lost game one by uh, was it game one or two? Maybe we lost by five in LA. Um, I, I think you know the second year when we lost to San Antonio in the, in the final, and I thought we really had an opportunity to win that series uh, based on winning in San Antonio in game two, something that, you know, very rare to do, uh, you know, taking home court, um, getting into a, you know, a 2-2 series and then kind of laying an egg in game five and then 
really having them on their heels in, in game six and letting that go. I thought if we got to a game seven that, you know, there was certainly a you know, chance just because we had been there the year before, not in a game seven setting, but just from an experience standpoint. So I, I think, you know, that, that um, you know, that, that, that 0 2 3 team, I think that was certainly you know mixed, missed opportunity there. Yeah, I've, I recently rewatched uh, Game Six of it and and found it pretty pretty difficult to uh, to get through because I think they were uh, they were really uh, right there. I'm curious before we close out, do you think if um, do you think if Kmart never went through the knee injuries that he went through, he I mean, he, how explosive he was? I guess he was playing like around the time that Amari was also kind of exploding. It seems like he could have just had like such a interesting and an awesome career i i mean he some of his game ended up ends up reminding me a little bit of blake he doesn't have like the passing that blake has and um it seemed like he was trying to develop the mid-range even like in his time with the nets but uh, like how, how talented and how great was uh kenyon when he was still young and before the uh knee injuries with the nuggets well, and it's, it's funny, you know, he had that, that, that really devastating injury at Cincinnati and then wound up breaking his, you know, he broke his leg again his rookie year. And then really, you know, when Kid came, it kind of just put him at a different level. He finally got healthy there, got accustomed to Byron as a coach, and then and then really took off. And then, you know, it was fortunate that we didn't keep him and we traded him, and those two picks wound up turning into events down the road. So I guess it worked out for you know, for everyone, and then, you know, was still plagued by, you know, when he got to Denver, was still plagued by, you know, puts together some good years, but was still, you know, there was not really the healthy Kenyon that maybe was we saw in 0102 and 0203. Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I, I also remember, um, I remember RJ kind of had a. I forgot was his was RJ the the ACL. I forgot what he uh, what he tore because he he also like he never really was the was the same post post that injury as well. No, you're right. You know, he never. Um, uh, you know, he you know he, he battled some uh, you know some injuries there also, and um, you know it was, it was it felt like after that you know that the three year run was you know was over. You know, guys kind of you know there was a lot more cheeks in the armor. Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess uh, I'm I'm longing for those days uh, now that it's like 13, 14, uh, 14 years ago. But uh, look, I appreciate I appreciate all the help that you gave uh, bringing those two uh, awesome final seasons. That was that was a lot of fun. And and honestly, I really enjoyed, even though the 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 effects of the KG Pierce trade up we're gonna feel for a while. That first year in that series against Toronto and even Miami, I I always say that I think that that net series against the Heat could have gone a million different ways. And I, and I, oh, I, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think you, I mean, probably take away the two games in Miami because it didn't really come down to the, you know, it wasn't a, you know, as close a game as you thought. But you win, um, you know, you win game three at home. I thought, you know, certainly game four, um, you know, you could have one at home, you know, the Bosch, was the Bosch three in the corner that really, yep. that, you know, kind of won the game there. And then you look at game five, I mean, that was a game. One of probably Joe's best performances that I've seen, oh, yeah. um, you know, in that certainly in that fourth quarter where we certainly could have won, and then if you get back home and in a you know like game six, you never know what would have happened. Yeah, no, and I also I also felt throughout the whole series, and this might be my my Homer uh, Nets fandom kicking, and I, I also felt like Joe just did not get the same calls as any of the big three did in in, in Miami, but. No, he didn't, and then I think it's a lot of it. He's a hard guy to, to 
Garner to uh, ref against just based on his size there where you know he can take a lot of contact and probably won't flop or make it look like he's you know drawing 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 the contact yeah no absolutely but um hey look he still he still clearly has the the iso joan and based off of uh two nights ago though i i i, I love seeing him have success though no you're right no you're right i mean it, it, it does give you pleasure especially when you i mean i i said the other night i mean i don't you can never um you know fall out of love with you know a uh you know posting up one of those little guards in the paint backing him down and then it's that soft you know little hook there that he has yep yeah absolutely i'm sure he'll uh i'm sure that shot will haunt the clippers and i'm, and I, and I'm sure there's more to come from him because he just seems like he will always have more in the uh, tank but uh bobby thank you so much for doing this um this has been the 30th episode of uh, latch podcast we've had bobby marks on front office insider at the vertical former assistant gm with the nets um bobby you're on twitter at bobby marks 42 correct that is correct, yep. Uh, yeah, anything else uh, you'd like to plug? I know you uh, have been doing some summer no, agendas started, for a bunch uh, of teams. You know, I just, we started the summer agenda series uh, today. We uh, launched Brooklyn uh, just about an hour ago in Phoenix, so you can you can take a look at that on the vertical, just kind of what the focus on when both teams are going and heading into uh, into free agency with uh, some ideas on how both teams can, you know, Maybe not get into the lottery next year. You know, maybe make some uh, make some improvement. I think you look at the Nets team is, you know, there's a lot of choices they got to make. You know, do they want to go that restricted free agency route where you're chasing those offer sheets, or, or uh, you know, how they use their their cap space? You've got the you got the Lopez expiring contract. I think you got to find ins- uh, some insurance with uh, you know Jeremy Lin. So there's a lot of lot of questions still you know out there that I I know that you know Sean Marks. Is, done a good job there we'll you know certainly uh, address in the offseason yeah I'm not, I'm not gonna I think I'm I think I'm done betting on uh, on Brooke Lopez getting traded <laughs> well you only got one more year to deal you know to figure it out and so it's not gonna be this year I don't think it'll happen again yeah and, and even and even though I've been in the camp as a Nets fan of that I think he should be dealt because, because I, I also get nervous about him re-breaking uh his foot even though he has been really healthy um even I, I listened to his interview with uh, your colleague Chris Maddox, and he's he's so likable that it is hard to to want to trade him, even still at the end of the day. He's a great guy. There's not many that you can find like that who you know really cares about. Uh, you know, I mean, look at what Brooks been through. You know, what a 12 win season, a 20 win season, um, and you know. Loves where he plays. He's kind of. I always said he's a he's a creature of habit there. Yep. All right. I'll, absolutely. All right. Awesome. This has been the thirtieth uh, episode of the Latch Podcast. You can find it on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, also posted on Facebook and uh, Twitter. Thanks a lot, Bobby. You're welcome. Thanks.